Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 12th episode of the Trojan Venture Podcast. Uh, we are here again in the dog days of summer, but Vivek and I are still going strong with another podcast. Vivek, how are we doing? Doing all right. I'm really excited to do this podcast because there really isn't much going on, you know, the dog days, but let's see. Yeah, I'm ready to get into it. Yeah, and today we have a really interesting guest. We're excited to welcome Troy Bannister, the founder and chief strategy officer at Particle Health. Troy served as CEO of Particle Health from 2018 until May of this year before transitioning to chief strategy officer. Particle Health is an API platform for healthcare data exchange, allowing patients and consumers to share their medical information. Founded in 2018 and based out of New York City, they have raised almost $40 million in total funding, with their last funding coming through a Series B round in 2022. Notable investors include Menlo Ventures and Collaborative and collaborative fund. On a personal note, Troy has experience in many different sectors of the healthcare um, industry as a clinician, investor, and entrepreneur. Troy first worked as an EMT from 2008 to 2011, followed up by multiple clinical research roles at the University of Washington and Mount Sinai. After this, Troy transitioned to the business side of the healthcare space with business development roles at Startup Health and entrepreneurship entrepreneur and residence positions at Proto Ventures and P5 Health Ventures, as well as serving as a co-lead at ILE from 2018 to 2020. Portal Health does a lot of interesting things. Um, it's, it seems very sophisticated, um, but seems like a really important solution for the healthcare space. I'm super excited to have Troy on. Vic, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Hey, Troy. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Vivek, I think we have a lot of questions to get to, so I'll let you uh, take the lead here. For sure, yeah. Um, let's get started. So what sparked your passion for healthcare? Um, weirdly, my math teacher in high school was an EMT when he was in college, and he told these like super crazy stories about, you know, freaky stuff, weird stuff, all the stuff he saw as an EMT back when he was in college. And it seemed like a really just amazing experience as as a young person to have. Um, so when I got to college, I signed up to become an EMT. And when I was 18, I was driving an ambulance around Seattle um, or in the back of the ambulance. And I also had these crazy experiences. But I think at the root of every one of those experiences was this kind of like magical ability to be um, a person that the other person needs. That was one of the worst moments of their life. And that was a really special thing to like be a part of and like to embody at a, at a young age. And it got me really focused on like the value of healthcare in the US. Um, and so that really kicked me into healthcare. And so how did those experiences, what were the main insights you kind of got from those experiences about the healthcare industry at large? I think it was just, um, it was comparing and contrasting those experiences to where, what I would have gotten if I went into banking or finance or um, chemistry, like chemistry, like there's all these like derivative worlds that are very important. And you need them. Don't get me wrong, but like the directness of like my action results in the saving of a life, um, was like really impactful to me that I could be that person that I could possess those powers, um, that I could, you know, dedicate my life to doing those types of positive things to the world. And it kind of like really pushed me into that direction. So, I mean, you own a med tech startup, correct, right? Yeah. Um, why do you think like founders for med tech startups often kind of struggle with translating, you know, evidence-based healthcare 
into like successful scalable like successful businesses oh man it's because the incentive structures in healthcare are all misaligned it's the business models in healthcare are the biggest one of the biggest problems not necessarily like value-based care like most of the healthcare world still operates in if i run this test two times i get paid twice right um which is just backwards um so it's not that reducing the amount of lab testing isn't isn't good. It's just not how the model works today. And there's a big push to value-based care. We know Medicare and Medicaid are big pushes. Medicare Advantage um, are growing really fast and a lot more people are joining. But we're not a single-payer system. We're not a government-sponsored health eco, uh, healthcare industry. And because of that, because we're privatized, they get to make the rules for the most part, heavily regulated. But at the end of the day, insurance companies are making many, many billions. Pharmaceutical companies are making many, many billions. And that's just kind of the way they have it set up. And you, from your background, had kind of an interesting switch because you started off, as you mentioned, in college, really on like the EMT clinical side. And then you made this gradual shift over to the business side of healthcare. And I think those are, as Vic said, those are really two different things that it's yeah. hard for people to kind of merge those. And you spent some time at Startup Health kind of I mean, you had a lot of different roles there, but one of the things is how do the, like startups in healthcare build successful business models? And so what were some of the main things you learned from that experience that you then took and applied to uh, Particle Health when you founded it? Um, it's a really good point. So I think um, the clinical side is important, but I think what I realized when I was in grad school was that that stuff is not exactly what I'm the best at or what makes me happy or what I enjoy the most. I gravitated much more towards building a business, thinking strategically, being socially outgoing in the form of business development and fundraising. But there's stuff I just like am naturally good at and enjoy doing. Um, one of my best friends growing up that I lived with in New York for a while, I was, I was, while I was doing clinical work, was like, dude, you need to be in business. Like all the time he was telling me that. And I was like, no, no. <laughs> but lo and behold, I kind of like gradually found my way in. I think the exciting world of startups is what captured me first. And that was in the form of startup health. Um, <clears throat> I was coming from Mount Sinai where I was doing clinical research and startup health was looking for, you know, somebody that had clinical background that could basically talk to a bunch of entrepreneurs and vet their, their ideas. Like, is this healthcare idea clinically, you know, valuable or not? So I had that, I got lucky with that kind of bridge into venture. Startup health is like a little bit accelerator model, a little bit um, venture capital model. Um, and so I got that bridge in there and that's when I met, you know, thousands of entrepreneurs over three, four years. I think the biggest takeaway I had was if most of the people I met, I was like, if they can do it, I can do it. <laughs> that was like my takeaway after meeting like, you know, probably a thousand plus entrepreneurs. I was like super smart people, great backgrounds, but I think I can do this too. And it gave me the confidence to just take the, take the plunge. Yeah. I mean, and you did, right. You took the plunge and it worked out great for you. Um, and so well, we're, yeah. not the, we're not at the happy ending yet. Oh yeah. You know, it's, it's so great. Far, so good. It's good. But, um, you know, like particle health, so they serve, uh, three different types of markets, right. Um, them being primary care, specialty care, uh, and platform plus EHRs. Um, so could you just take me through like some of the use cases about how particle health adds value to all three of those markets? I think the fundamental value. And so like, there's another way to look at this. It's kind of like what stakeholders there's, there's um, providers. It's like the four P's 
providers, which are the doctors, payers, the insurance company, pharma, you know, pharma can be clinical trials, and then patients is the fourth P. Right now, um, because of regulations, we're forced to only serve the treatment use case, the, the providers today. So okay, let's, let's start with that premise. Under providers, you have two types. The types I mentioned earlier that just want to run more tests because they get paid that way. And then the growing faction of providers that are under value-based care contracts that don't want to run more tests. The way that they get paid isn't on a fee-for-service schedule, but basically they get an allowance every month that they can spend on their patients. And the healthier those patients are, the less they, they spend. They don't pay for them to go into surgery. They don't pay for them to run two tests or three tests. The more efficient and the better they are at managing that population of patients, the more they get to keep at the end of the year. So that world, we come in very valuably because when that patient shows up, we can tell them exactly what conditions they have, exactly what uh, lab tests they had last week, what medications they're on. We can create a care plan and assess them for risk very quickly and very effectively and very affordably because they care about keeping this patient out of the hospital. And we can check on that patient in between you know, encounters. Um, so there's, there's, all these, um, there's all these benefits to having information on the patient if you're trying to uh, operate under a risk-based model. So that's the, that's the really kind of main use case that we see across our, our customers today. So oh, yeah, go for it. Yeah, sorry, real quick. I was just going to ask, like, so Particle Health kind of serves as this, like, place where you can, you know, gather the data that makes it more accurate. So you have like kind of less of the, the inefficiencies in patient care. That's one way to put it. Yeah. So like, remember we plug directly into our customers, current systems and workflows, right? So there's, you're not like logging into anything new. It's just more relevant, fresh information at your fingertips than you had before. So when a patient shows up, typically you have to fill out a big form what meds am I on? Do I have any of these conditions? Da, 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 da. And then they take that and they have like, you know, a 30 minute consult with you. And then they like decide, oh, you have a condition. We need to treat that. Let's get some med medications, whatever. All that is garbage. <laughs> um, the, the new world is I show up at the doctor's office. My medical records have already been in their system for a day, have been processed and have already prompted the doctor to prescribe those meds. It's also created you know, all the out, output to bill and accurately assess that patient for risk, enroll them in the right programs, X, Y, Z. It's a way more automated way of doing things. And that saves money because you're not doing it by fax machine anymore, which is our biggest competitor in the market. Number one way medical records are exchanged today is fax machine still. Um, and then it also just creates a ton of new opportunity to build stuff on top of that. Like what aren't we building yet? So that's, yeah, that's the general premise. And one of the things that I was kind of giving myself an overview of, you know, what is what do you guys do is one thing that stuck out to me is that the sheer vast amount of medical records that are in your system um, and the amount you're like the amount of just pure raw data that you're able to then distribute. Could you just kind of from a high level take us through the process of how Particle accesses and then shares this uh, this large volume of data? Yeah, so there is no single source of everyone's medical records in the United States, right? In fact, it's kind of a battle over who can own it. And there's um, these large electronic medical record vendors out there. Some of the big ones are Epic, Cerner, Allscripts, Athena Health, eClinical Works. You might have heard of that, these groups. Um, they are the ones that are, are storing the data, either on-premise on servers or in the cloud. 
Um, they're very old school companies, most of them. Epic's been around since I think the 60s or 70s. Um, they still are built on these coding systems called mumps from the 60s. Like they're old technology. Um, Epic has about 70% of the market share. So 70% of the medical records in the United States are in one company. It's almost 80% now, I think. Um, and so that presents a big set of challenges, right? From um, a competitive stance and also from a data liquidity stance. Um, they're so incentivized to own this information because it's very valuable to, to have it um, that they, they don't necessarily, you know, logically don't want to make it easily accessible. So that's where these new rules and regulations have come in. One big one that passed in the Obama era is called the anti-information blocking rule. And like it sounds, it says, hey, e EMRs, you're not allowed to block access anymore to third parties that deserve access. Providers, patients, clinical trial groups, insurance companies that needed to do things. Um, that rule is being matured right now. So where does that end up? Um, it means there are thousands of silos of information around the United States. Most of those silos are owned by one organization and groups like Particle are doing the work to go connect into all those silos and then leverage these new laws such that we can ping them for the data and they respond to us instantly without, so they're not breaking the law. Um, so that's, that's the way it works. So these networks are not centralized. They're federated. They're all distributed across the U.S. So every time I request you know, your record, Eric, we'd put in your name, date of birth, address, phone number, send it through the API. We'd go search the United States, pinging all those little endpoints, asking Epic, asking Cerner, asking Athena Health, do you have any records on this person? We would then download a record from each one of them, and then we would process and clean and standardize that data before passing it back through the API. So kind of transitioning into COVID-19, right? Like how, mm -hmm. how did that sort of affect the legislation around patient healthcare data and on particles growth and the value to healthcare companies? Yeah, quite a jump. Um, so um, it's had some initial inertia and then slowed everything down. So these anti-information blocking rules I was talking about are now like delayed by over a year because of COVID-19. You'd think that maybe information sharing might be prioritized and accelerated, right? Like case reporting was a huge problem. Like vaccine registries were a huge problem. All would be solved with this rule. Um, however, they basically said hospitals are overburdened with patients and we're not going to force new rules down their throats right now. Let them deal with the patients. So info blocking got pushed. Um, TEFCA is another big rule that got pushed out. Um, in fact, one of the big conferences of year in health tech is called um, HIMSS. And I think um, in 2020, it was supposed to be in uh, Miami, Florida. Uh, there's like a big convention center down there. And Trump was supposed to come speak at the convention. And he was going to announce the anti-information blocking rule as, as like a, a new, like, you know, big, it's, it's, it's live now and everyone's following this new law. Obviously it all got canceled because of COVID. Um, so Trump did not go down to, to Miami and announce this. Um, instead it got pushed like six months. So everything got slowed down, frankly, which is kind of counterintuitive. And when you were starting Particle Health, obviously you've built out a lot of different services um, and product lines, but right at its origin, was there a specific like focus that you guys had for your MVP that you said, you know, really want to get really good at this? Um, what, what was the kind of origin story to that? We had some theories, but we didn't know which one would stick. So we threw a lot of spaghetti at the wall and we found, um, like I mentioned before, risk bearing entities are the ones that need this the most. 
the telemedicine companies that just get paid every time they, you know, issue an appointment or, uh, you know, whatever, they don't care. Um, the ones that really do want this are risk-bearing entities, um, value-based care groups. Um, you know, I think Oak Street Health was our first like, big customer and they just, you know, IPO'd and then got by CVS. Um, they uh, they kind of taught us that. They showed us kind of like why they want the data. And then we found kind of similar like companies in the market. So from like a fundraising perspective, um, what are the most important things you prioritize when deciding whether to bring an investor onto your cap table? Um, so the question is like why you would bring an investor? Yeah, yeah. Like what do you look for in an investor when you like are, you know, looking for one? And like what, yeah, what's a, what's a good investor to you? Okay, got it. Um, so there's definitely good investors out there and bad investors out there. And it is determined on what you need. I think there's probably some entrepreneurs that want hands-off investors. Like they've done this three times. They know what they're doing. It's an industry they're like, intimately familiar with they're the subject matter expertise and they just want some like you know basic support i think there's other times first time founders don't know what they're doing maybe it's a new market a new industry whatever that's where you want some like smart money um so in the smart money side um there are i think i think the number one thing is you're not looking at the firm right when you're when you're considering an investor um, firm re reputation is nice. It's a nice to have, but really what you're looking for is the partner that's going to join your board. That's the thing that matters 99%. Um, I think most VCs will like market all these things. Like we have a platform of XYZ and all these services and databases and da, 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 da. It, it, it no, it's not good. It's not real. Um, I think, you know, what really, really matters is the right partner. That's 99% of it. So when you're doing your research and picking an investor, you have to pick by the partner you want on your board. Um, that's the person you're going to be spending all the time with. That's the person that's going to get mad at you. That's the person that's going to buy you dinner when things are going well. Um, that's, that's your, um, you know, your, your spouse, <laughs> so to speak, um, outside of your co-founder, I suppose. Um, maybe it's your, your spouse in law. Um, but, uh, that's, that's the biggest advice is the partner. And speaking about the, I mean, the intersection between venture and digital health, obviously there's been such a huge explosion in digital health funding in the venture market in the last couple of years. But one of the things that has, I wouldn't say necessarily has plagued the healthcare industry, but something that has been brought up is, you know, can people that are not experienced in healthcare build successful healthcare companies, right? Um, obviously, there's been warning stories about healthcare companies that are not built off a lot of clinical expertise. So would you say from your experience that your clinical background is really what gave you the le leg up to start it? Or do you think someone from a non-clinical background could be just as successful in this space? I think it's the latter. Um... In fact, I think healthcare needs more non-healthcare mindshare in it. Like the consumers, consumerization of healthcare hasn't really happened that much yet. I think there's some early signs of it working. Um, there's all these kind of like, you know, um, boutique primary care groups and specialty care groups that, and, you know, mental health, for example, that people pay out of pocket for that are working really, really well. Um, but um I think the models that work outside of healthcare need to be brought into healthcare. Um, the difficulty with doing that though, is the business models, the misaligned incentives and knowing the nuances there. 
So I don't think it's the clinical background that's important. It's knowing the stakeholders and how the stakeholders work. That's important. Following the money, knowing why something really obvious that should work doesn't work. That's that's like the biggest thing that, you know, there's a thousand of those across all of healthcare. Um, those little landmines will get you in deep trouble if you don't bring in a healthcare industry vet um, that that can figure that out st that stuff out for you. So, like, what are your some of your like biggest tips to someone that would be wanting to pursue a career in medical technology, whether it be like you know not as a founder or just like as a you know the person that wants to work, whether it be like on a tech background, business background, marketing, etc. Um, yeah, it's the hardest industry. Like everything's slow, nothing makes sense. Um, sales cycles are like 18 months on average, right? Like it's mind numbing. Um, but it's also last year, it was a $4.2 trillion market, right? Um, it was massive. So there's a lot of room for innovation. There's a lot of room for efficiency gain. There's a lot of organizations out there that don't want innovation or efficiency gain. So it's a battle. And that's the fun part, frankly. It's like understanding the incumbents, why they don't want change, and then being creative and strategic to start making that change happen. And that's like really, and that's very, it's, it's incredibly rewarding and fun and interesting. Um, it's, it's deeply complicated and um, there's a million challenges along the way, but that's kind of why I think people like me get into this. Like I didn't do it because it's easy. I did it because it's wildly hard. Um, you only get one life, so spend it doing stuff like this, right? Um, so like, I think if you're going to get into healthcare at all, in any area at all, um, be prepared to like face slowness, complications, uh, misalignments of incentives and just nonsensical things left and right. But the beauty of it is navigating through that and finding success. That's where it gets really cool. And like all startups at the beginning, first of all, you have a set of assumptions. Those things are proven wrong as you're looking to kind of look for your product market fit from particles standpoint were there things when you guys were initially starting some hypotheses that you guys had that you guys thought would be true and then you started building the business and said you know what we're going to pivot and have to go in a different direction um i wouldn't call it a pivot we haven't like changed our like product tech stack or anything um i'll say this like what we were building seemed impossible at the time. Everybody was like, you can't just put a name in an API and get everyone's medical records back. That's impossible. Um, that's like the dream. That was like the thing that people have been talking about for 20, 30 years. Um, when we built it, I thought we were going to retire. I was like, we're going to be billionaires. <laughs> like we did it. We built an API. We put people's names in it and the records came back in under a minute. We were like, holy shit. Um, the problem was the data coming back to the API was absolute garbage. <laughs> um, it was Every single file was a different format, a different standard. There were duplicates. Um, it was impossible to use. So then we went on this big journey to standardize the data, and that took a year plus. So we standardized the data. And then the customers were like, I love that it's standardized, but like we need it to be converted into like sets of data that are used in our workflow. Um, like we don't want 150 records per patient. We just want their A1C values and you know, GFR values chronologically ordered or ER admission, you know, history like displayed. 
So then that was another kind of like year journey of like taking all the standardized data and building data products. So like now we're four or five years in and I'm like, where's that retirement, man? <laughs> you know, now there's like, you know, competitors on the market and there's downward pricing pressure and there's, you know, different directions and regulations and policies and new opportunities. So like, it's kind of a, um, a fleeting, you know, um, uh, exit, um, with, with companies like this, I believe, but, um, the 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 more we get pushed by the market to go that extra step and provide more and more value, um, I think the the better the business we're building is. So it's it's an organic and painful process, but it's a good one. So like out of curiosity, like I'm a developer myself. I'm just curious, like what are you guys using as like your tech stack? GCP. Um, I, I don't even know what that is. I'm gonna be honest. Oh, Google Cloud Platform. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, so GCP. They have a bunch of healthcare products. Um, one's called Firestore. Um, Fire stands for Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources. So it's kind of a um, database meant for the data that we leverage. Um, I don't know if you know, like BigQuery, Kubernetes, Terraform, yeah. stuff like that. Um, we're starting to build out more, way more advanced data pipelining and analytics capabilities, though, on top of all that. Awesome. Sounds yeah. cool. And I guess a question that a lot of people might be wondering is, what's next? Um, you know, what's the, what's the three to five year goal? Obviously there's financial goals, um, that you guys probably want to hit, but are there parts of the business that you guys, you know, two or three years from now want to really improve on or implement new lines or something like that? Yeah, I think there's two major areas. Um, one is you can imagine with all this data, the unique ability we will have to generate insights and analytics and, and, you know, the, you know, hot topic at hand, large language models and AI. Um, we have access to every single human's medical records in the United States. And so instead of asking our API for medical records or asking our API for the risk score of diabetes on a patient, what if you could ask it anything and AI would be able to answer you, you know, very quickly, um, high accuracy responses on an individual or a population of patients. That's where things get really, really interesting, right? where should I run my clinical trials for this trial? And it looks through the data and it finds where population density is around a certain condition of patients that meet certain criteria and recommends 15 sites to run a trial. You know, there's, there's a, a huge amount of, of value to be generated there. The other is um, consumer access. The regulations do not require, um, uh, do not mandate that consumers have access to their own data today, which is wild. Um, and so we are fighting that fight. I'm down in DC sometimes talking, working with some of the, the agencies. Um, we're fighting like a policy fight right now to allow consumers to access their own medical records through APIs. And it's, it's a slow uphill battle. Um, so we think, um, patients have the right to access their own records and today they don't, um, they don't have that right. So we're, we're fighting that battle too. So that's the other big one, I think. And this might not be a question that's completely applicable, but um, one that I would think others might be interested in. How does this, I mean, because you're talking about, you know, access to very sensitive medical records, how does that relate to privacy laws in healthcare, specifically like HIPAA? Like what regulations around that do you guys have to go through? What is the question? I love this question. Let's see. Do you know what the P in HIPAA stands for? I don't know. Any guesses? Make a guess. Personalization? Nope. Mm. Vague. What about you? 
Um, I have no idea. Honestly. Yeah, list, listeners at home, make your guess. It stands for portability. The, the whole purpose behind HIPAA was to make it easy to exchange medical records for certain organizations, certain types of stakeholders. And those stakeholders fell into, it's called TPO, treatment, payment, and operations. Those are the three use cases, treating patients, facilitating payment for services, and then operations, which is a bit more um, open-ended, which is around like looking at a population of patients to figure out which ones are maybe need to come into the hospital, things like that. Um, those don't require any authorization, any permission, nothing. They should be really, really easy to exchange information for because those are core healthcare services that don't need friction. So um, HIPAA was designed to make data exchange really freely. Didn't happen, obviously. So a new rule came out several years after in the, in the Bush administration called High Tech Act. And that rule said, okay, paper-based is still friction-filled. Let's turn it all electronic. So high trust made everybody switch from paper to electronic, still didn't make data exchange easy. So then a third rule came out, and that's the one we were just talking about, the anti-information blocking rule that says, hey, we've tried two laws now. Let's try one more law that says treatment, payment, operation, individual access, no friction. Make it easy. Has to be easy. If you make it hard, it's now information blocking and you're subject to a fine. And that fine is a million dollars per infraction. Yeah, it's big. So they've been trying to regulate this for something like 27 years now since they, they started this. And still patients have insanely difficult time accessing their own records and, and so on and so forth. Well, wow, this has been a great conversation, Troy. Um, if there's anything else you want to add about, you know, policy or tech and med tech, feel free, like, I, yeah, we, we're done with our questions, but feel free to add anything. Don't get me started, man. That's <laughs> Uh, this gets me heated. Um, no, it's just, it, I think I've covered a lot of it. It was great. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. We've had a great time. It's been a great conversation. Learned a lot about policy and the things we need to do to get, you know, the next step in, you know, medicine in the United States. So thanks for coming on. For sure. I appreciate it. It was good. Troy, really appreciate it as well. Thank you all. All right. Bye. Well, Vivek, as I expected and was very confident about Troy uh, knows so much about the healthcare space from policy to particle health and what just the challenges in the future of it are. And I felt as I do with a lot of other guests, so much more educated about the industry after just 30 minutes of chatting. So it was great. How about you? Yeah, no, I mean, he has a great, like great ideas about, you know, policy and like how we should be approaching things, but we aren't, you know, currently. Um, but yeah, I think the product that he has is actually very, very good. Like it is very useful and has a lot of use cases in the future. So. And it was, I mean, it was interesting. I really wanted to ask, you know, the question of, do, do you think people that don't have a clinical background like yourself are equipped to kind of enter this space? And I was surprised to hear that he was thought that not enough clinical people were entering the space. Um, so even from somebody that's been in the space for, you know, over a decade, pretty obvious to him that we're, the space is ripe for new solutions. So it was exciting to hear. And obviously, you know, he's very passionate about what he was talking about. I'm really excited to see where Particle Health goes from here. Yeah, me too. Vivek, any, uh, any plans for the rest of July? Uh, not really. I'm just chilling at home. Yeah, pretty it's, much. It's, 
terribly, terribly hot in New York. I don't know about Chicago, but um, inside with air conditioning is not the worst. Nah, dude, Chicago is pretty horrible in the summers. It gets like, <laughs> gets bad some days. It gets bad. All right, Vivek, well, I'll, we'll talk in the next couple of weeks for another episode. But until then, uh, thank you guys. And uh, we'll see you all soon.